and grab your Bible again if you had one out earlier. Uh, we're going to be looking back at Revelation chapter 1. Hello, my name is Callum. Um, as Andy said, uh, I'm also on staff here as a pastor in training at, as part of this church. And tonight we're going to be looking at the question in this series of questions of Christianity and the future. What does the Bible say about the future? Uh, before we get into it, uh, we're going to be turning uh, verses, verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1 into a prayer. So please pray with me. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Heavenly Father, would you bless us tonight? Would you bless us by the preaching of your word, that we would hear it, you speaking to us, and take to heart what is written? And we ask this, Lord, because the time is near of all things being brought to completion. Lord, help us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in thinking about the future, where do you see the world heading? Maybe you think, generally, things are going pretty well. Things are progressing so much these days. There is so much change going on in the world. There is so much progress, even within the last decade, of what we've been able to do, what humans are able to achieve. You could point to advances in technology. You could look at more and more countries becoming industrialized and uh, doing better for themselves, growing. You can look at better health care that is available across the world, wider education available to both boys and girls. Well, if we think about all those things, all that progress that is being made, where does that end up? Well, it's, it's not a straight line, but if it's generally progressing upwards, that sounds like a utopia that we arrive at, doesn't it? If we are able to knock off one problem after the, the next that humans are able to come up against, eventually we'll run out of problems. We'll arrive at a, a world without limits or labor or inequality, equality for all. Is that where you see the world heading? Maybe instead you, you think things are getting worse. We're never far from news on our phone or on the TV, in the newspaper, and there's plenty of bad news about climate change with irreversible damage to our planet, wars and rumors of wars around us with more advanced weaponry, pandemics with even more aggressive viruses, where vaccines aren't able even able to keep up, it seems, with these viruses. 
AI, the beautiful creation of AI outsmarting, potentially, its human creators. Do you notice in all of these things that, that seem to have a risk, pose a risk, there's actually progress being made in all of them. Climate change, in part, down to more and more countries becoming industrialized, being able to take care of themselves, growing and expanding. Weapons becoming more advanced because of technology. Viruses becoming more aggressive because of development in healthcare. And AI, we've all heard the, the news recently, even some of the earlier creators, warning of the risks that it poses. Despite all of this progress that seems to be being made in our society, we in the West live in a more polarized time than ever before. Rather than happiness, we are experiencing increased suicide rates, anxiety, depression. Now, in all of this progress and these fears, there are a lot of hopes and fears tied to all of these. And we feel this burden deeply. How do we cut through all of these different scenarios, all of the uncertainty that there might be in all of them, to find out what is certain, what is true? Not that any of these scenarios are untrue, it's just that they are uncertain. How can we tie ourselves, be standing on foundation that is firm, that is certain, that will last? Well, I tonight want us to look at, to try and keep things simple when looking at the future. I want us to focus on two simple certainties. And if we know, if we can bank on these two things being true, being certain, then they ought to dictate our mindset, our behavior. And we can start to make sense of everything else going on in our lives, all the uncertainties. Well, in order to arrive at two certainties, where do we get certainty about the future from? We turn to the Bible. Now, big surprise. <laughs> You're in a church service. Of course, I was going to say something like that. We turn to the Christian book. But in case you're, you're tempted to, if you're new to church, if you've maybe been brought along by a friend, maybe you've seen one of the fringe events on recently, and at me saying, let's turn to the Bible, if you're in danger of switching off, can I just say this? If one of the Bible contributors, a guy called Paul, can write in one of his letters to a, a church back in the first century that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead, all of these things according to Scripture, the Scriptures. If this book, or a compilation of books made up of many writers over many centuries could successfully predict centuries in advance, intricate details of the life and death of a man, Jesus Christ, if they could predict successfully that this man might rise again from the dead, as profound as that might sound, if they could predict that accurately, 
then I think the Bible has a platform to be able to speak to us about what the further future might hold. Would you agree with me on that? At least give it a little bit of the time of day to see what it says. If you have some issues about this of maybe the reliability of the Bible, if we can believe what it says to be true or not, as Andy mentioned earlier, please come back next Sunday morning. We're covering a service in what does the Bible say about the Bible? What does, can we actually believe this to be true? But to look for certainty about the future, we're going to look at this last book of the Bible, Revelation, that was read for us earlier. And we're going to be jumping around in some of the verses. Those are the little numbers on the page. So keep your eye out for that. But the first certainty that we're going to look at is this. Jesus is Lord, the first and the last. And we ought to submit to him. Now, we could impose things and manipulate the message of the Bible to make up what we, whatever we want it to say. I could do that. Some have picked up some of the, the numbers and the symbols, and there's a lot of them if you go on reading in Revelation, attempted to make precise time predictions about the end of the world, when all of these events ought to take place, a right time and a right date. But to do that would be to mishandle the tool, to try and do something with it that it was never designed to do, that John who wrote this never designed for it uh, to be done. He didn't look for a certain date. It'd be like tea leaves. Tea leaves are designed to go into a tea bag. They are to go into my hot cuppa for me to drink. They are not designed for me to try and predict the future from them. That would be misusing tea leaves. In the same way, we do not want to mishandle the Bible. We don't want to say any more or any less of what the Bible says is certain, and we want to stick to that. Jesus himself says elsewhere in the Bible not to listen to those who make bold claims about the exact time and date of the end. Instead, Jesus says, the end will come like a thief in the night. You can't predict it. It will surprise you in Matthew 24, 43. So what can we be sure of here? Look at verse 1. This is a vision described in this book is a revelation from Jesus. This isn't John hallucinating. This is Jesus' revelation. And at the end of verse 17, he says this, I am the first and the last. Now, what's the context here? This letter and vision is, is recorded by the Apostle John, it says in verse 9, probably the last surviving member of Jesus' initial group of followers, the Apostles. He has been exiled to an uninhabited island of Patmos as a political prisoner. This is no holiday that he is on. He is this is his death sentence, essentially, put on him by the Roman emperor for claiming that Jesus, not the emperor, is the one worthy of our praise, is the one who should be worshipped. Now, I'm sure 
John's specific situation is not too dissimilar to the things that we've been discussing. The worries that he was probably facing. Was Christianity simply going to peter out? Was it going to be quashed by a mighty empire with a monopoly of power? And John's not alone in worrying about these things. The churches that are mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3 right after this have the same tough persecution. Amid this uncertainty, Christ, Jesus, reveals to John, and to pass on to those churches, he shows the true state of play. Jesus is lifting the lid to show heaven's perspective on the events of earth. And it is clear, this book is not designed to confuse us, it's to make clear. As mighty as Rome might look, it is Christ and his kingdom that will remain long after Rome is gone. He is able to to say that he is last, that he is eternal as God himself. That name, first and last, is similar to the name God the Father gets in verse 4. Not only does he outlast this empire, he predates these mega empires. Because he is the one who created them in the first place. Colossians 1 says this, For in him all things were created, in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are being created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, John has heard before from Jesus that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's what we read at the end of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus at the end of Matthew. On that occasion, Jesus' glory was still veiled from them. But not this time. This is not what John sees this time. Have a look at verse 7. John invites us to look. And he sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds. This is Old Testament language, of bits older in the Bible, and it's unpacked more in verses 12 to 16. Have a look. Remember, now, this is all symbolic. This is all poetic language that John is using to try and describe the unfathomable unfathomable sight that is before him. Verse 12 to 16, he is dressed in a robe and sash like a glorious priest, hair showing infinite wisdom, eyes without impurity, immovable feet, words of ultimate power, and a face of unfiltered glory. This is the same Jesus that John and the apostles had been walking from town to town with. But now his true glory is revealed, is on display This is what glory looks like. And Rome and any other contemporary kingdom, whether it's a global superpower or an international tech company, any of their glory does not come close to Jesus here. Christ is first and the last. He is the Lord. 
all is placed under his feet. His kingdom will never end. What John sees here in Revelation 1 is a present-day reality, but as of yet is only on full display in heaven. But as the the later chapters in Revelation reveal, Jesus will be bringing this unveiled glory when he physically returns to earth again, when he returns to earth for a second time. And when he does, all false kingdoms will finally be destroyed. None will last. Only Jesus is able to say that he is the first and the last. Nothing else will remain. This is the first certainty about the future. Christ is reigning and will reign forever. Now, in view of that certainty, how should we respond? Well, much like John in verse 6, what does John do? To him be glory and power forever and ever. He's captured by this vision in front of him. Jesus is worthy of our praise and worship. We rightfully need to submit to him, do we not? This starts by us, first of all, listening to what Jesus has to say with all authority and seeing him in his true state, his true eternal authority that reigns, ought to reign over our lives. If his kingdom is the only one that will last, that ought to change our priorities. We don't want to be living for things that vanish, do we? What kingdom are are you and I potentially torn towards building towards? What kingdom, what little empire are you trying to build in your work, in your family? What possessions are you trying to accumulate? Will they last? Not according to Jesus. Not in comparison to Jesus. And this certainty is a massive reassurance for those of us suffering alongside John, our brother and companion that it says in verse 9. In the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We can endure knowing that one day we will see our king and his kingdom with our very eyes, and it will not fade. So we've seen a a sort of grand picture of a certainty of the future, of where the future, this world, where history is heading. Now perhaps, that's a big claim, these are big deals, big things that we're talking about here. Perhaps this is too big for us to even fathom, for you to get your head around. If this is what the Bible is saying about the future, what is the Bible saying about your future? We'll see in our second point, our second certainty, Jesus is Savior, the living one, and we need to cry out to him. Here's the second certainty tonight. You are going to die. I'm sorry to say that, but it is true. You certainly will die. This on screen is is Brian Johnson. 
He's a 45-year-old tech entrepreneur, American. He's 45. He says that's his chronological age. That's the term he has for it. But he's trying to reduce his biological age through a strict daily regime of medication, of exercise. He has a team of 30 scientists looking after all the uh, medication that is going into him, all the treatments that he's receiving, all with the aim of reversing death itself. Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon is exploring having his body frozen and preserved to be woken in a future age. There is a massive industry behind longevity, is the term it's given, of trying to defeat death. There are billions of dollars that are invested in this. Death is the single biggest hurdle that our society of progress faces. And it has no answer for it. Brian might be making progress in reducing some elements of his biological age. But you know as well as I, he will die one day. We have a, a book of tables in a former life, I say that knowing the irony. I used to be training as an actuary. It's basically a rock and roll style of accountant. But to do our actuarial exams, we were given this book, Orange Tables, or the Orange Bible, as it was jokingly referred to. And on page after page, there were numbers, stats, where you could look up, and you can do this if you want after the service today, you can come and tell me your age, and I can tell you the probability that you will die within the next year. A great read. <laughs> but I can tell you, you get to the end of the book, the final age, around 119, 120, and certainty of one, that you will die. Death will get you. You may live to 119, 120, you may not, but you will die. And when we are presented with the certainty of our death, that makes us question the purpose of our lives, doesn't it? What are we living for? What was the point of life? Does it all just boil down to leaving some sort of legacy to be remembered for future generations? Will anything last? Well, I mention the certainty of your death not to add to your anxiety. I say it because there is hope in the certainty of death. It gives clarity because there is something that can be done about it. As I mentioned earlier, John was exiled to Patmos to die. What does Jesus have to say to him facing imminent death? Look at verse 18. Jesus calls himself, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, look again. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Firstly, we were instructed to look at Jesus in his glory in verse 7. And now verse 18, we are to look on Jesus, the living one. Jesus isn't just the, the all-powerful God. He has triumphed over every 
power, including death itself. Jesus, the first and the last God, took on human nature to lay down his life only to take it back up again. He passed through death and emerged the victor, living on the far side of it. And having done so, death has no hold on him. He has stripped death of its power and he holds the keys to the previously fortified prison of the place of death that grips you and I. Why did he do this? Verse 5 tells us that this was to make him the firstborn from the dead. He would be the first, but the first of many. We all die because of our sin, the Bible tells us, our rebellion against a good rule of God. It is a just punishment for our rebellion. That is why, when we look at the world, despite all of our progress, we corrupt our world with injustice and equality. The world is not split into good and bad people. The corruption of sin comes from every human heart, except one, the one who was completely pure and uncorrupted. Jesus would die not for his own sin, but to accept the punishment of those he came to save. He would take their place. That's why John delights in verse 5, to him, to Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. But that's not all. He would take our sins, but he would also make us partakers. We share in his gift of eternal life on the far side of the grave. Firstborn from among the dead, the first of many. For John, he, he could really do as Jesus commanded him in verse 17 and 18. Do not be afraid. Not only do you not need to fear the Romans and what the future holds, John. You don't need to fear death either. This promise doesn't mean that we avoid death. Jesus, our King, didn't avoid death, and neither will we, but it will not hold us if we believe in Him. Eternal life in the presence of our loving King awaits. That gives real, genuine hope in the face of death for all of us. Hope that will not fail or disappoint. But this promise only holds true for those who, verse 3, who hear it and take it to heart. You and I, like John, need to admit our sin and our need for a Savior. You need to cry out to Him for His help to do what you could not do yourself. You do so knowing how deeply He loves you and how unworthy you are to receive such a gift. If these two things are certain and true, that you are going to die and Jesus is the first and the last and the living one, what else are you holding out for? What else is worth putting your hope in? 
What else really matters in the grand scheme of things? Because nothing else will outlast him. And the punishment of death remains on those who do not act upon it. And that is for eternity. I make this appeal to you, not as some sort of hellfire insurance, but for you to know the Savior who loves you, that loves me, that loves John, the one who loves his people, the one who does not remain far away, but dwells among his people. You can know more of the Savior by picking up one of these little gospels of Mark. It covers the life of, John, of, of Jesus. These are on the table that you came in, just at the side. You are free to take one of these. Please do. Discover more of this person of Jesus. If you would like to read it with someone, if you have questions about what you're reading about this person of Jesus, well, get in touch with us here at the church. Either speak to me or Andy after the service, or email us, info at charlottechapel.org, and we'd be happy to meet up for coffee or something to have a chat. Please discover more of Jesus and read more into him. But that's not just a change our future. It changes our present as well. My Christian friends, will you look again on the risen Lord Jesus, your Lord, your Savior? By doing so, we are given assurance of his resurrection and ours. By doing so, we, like John, respond by giving him joyful glory, even in the midst of our severe suffering. Will we, like John, read these words of truth? Will we proclaim them to the world around us, whatever the consequences? Let's pray. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Lord, thank you for these two certainties that you have revealed for us. Not for us to despair, but to turn to you in hope and repentance. Lord, thank you that Jesus is the first and the last, that his kingdom lasts. Help us to look on him, to see him as the mighty God, to see him as the loving savior, to trust him amidst all the suffering and uncertainty that we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are plenty of things in this chapter that I've not touched on. If you have questions after tonight, as I say, I'll be at the door or out in the foyer just after the service. I'd love to chat to you. But to close our service, we're going to sing one final song. We sang it last Sunday, but I thought the theme was so good we had to sing it again. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Please stand.